Hey, friends, there's a lot going on in the world right now. I don't know if you noticed. Um, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus verse by verse, as is our custom. Uh, but I felt like we needed to just press the pause button for a few weeks and, and talk about some issues that I know are weighing heavily on hearts and minds right now. Uh, we believe that Jesus is the light of the world. We believe that he's the only one who has all of the answers to all of life's biggest questions. And so in, in moments of confusion, in moments of chaos, we need to make sure that we're looking at Jesus. And that's what we're going to do for these next few weeks. We're going to talk about the subject of racism today. Then we're going to talk about the end times next week, and we're going to answer the question, is this the end of the world? And then we're going to move on to talk about a term that you might not have even heard of yet, deconstructionism. Deconstructionism. It refers to the process of someone moving away from their faith, specifically from the Christian faith, toward atheism or agnosticism. I hope you'll encourage your friends to, to join us for some of these, uh, because while today is going to be very specifically aimed at believers, the next two Sundays are going to be very helpful to anybody. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, your friends and family are wondering if this is the end of the world. They're wondering what is going on. At a minimum, they're wondering why everything is so crazy right now. And if you know someone who's wrestling with truth and faith and issues with the church and all of those things, they're going to get a lot out of our message on deconstructionism. So I hope right now you'll just think through someone that you can invite. We'll have a graphic for you that you can pass on to your friends and just tell them to come and watch with you online at the same time. Send them a text. Say, are you watching right now? And let's see what God might want to do through that. I'm coining a new term, COVID cranky, COVID cranky. And I got to tell you, I have been COVID cranky recently. I'm just done. I'm just done with the restrictions. I, I'm over all the limitations. I just want to have church. That's the truth. And so part of the role that our men's group is playing in my life right now is counseling me on how to keep my COVID crankiness in check. Uh, Carmen, who's one of the men in our men's group, had seen something I'd posted on Facebook about COVID-19, and so he let me know that he's talking to family in Sicily, in uh, southern Italy, and they're telling him horror stories about what's going on, and he's, say, he's saying, Jeff, you know, it's just so much better if we don't have to deal with that. Trust me, you don't want to see what's happened in Italy happen here. So I made the mental note to do a better job controlling my opinions, took down the Facebook post like the coward that I am, and, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing, because as believers, we shouldn't be unnecessarily divisive or opinionated. Let me say that again. In the social media age, this could be a shocking disclosure. As believers, the Bible says we're not to be unnecessarily divisive or opinionated. Unless there's a good reason to take a stand on an issue, we're to be more concerned about our ability to minister to people and share Jesus with them than we are to be with our right to share our opinion with them. Easy to say, hard to do, especially for me. When the appalling death of George Floyd sparked protests around the world and great scenes of violence in America, one of the responses on social media was Blackout Tuesday. 
And so the whole point was to post a black blank square on your social media accounts and not post anything else that day. Take the day to listen to the voices of those who are hurting, especially from the black community in this time. And so at first, you know, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And it's not because I don't care about black people. It's because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't posting for selfish reasons. I was just seeing so many people on social media. I'm just going to be real honest right now. I was seeing so many people on social media who were posting things very transparently. And when I say that, I mean that it was very transparent that their motivation was selfish. It, It was really about them. And the whole subtext of what they were doing was very apparent. It was something like this. You know, what's, what's really important for all of us to remember in this time is that I'm not a racist. And that really came across in a lot of what people was posting. And I didn't want to be guilty of posting from that same shallow place. Just like in this message, I, I don't want to be guilty of teaching from a shallow place. I don't want to rant at you about racism so that I can make myself feel like less of a racist. I don't want to do that. I want to act in honesty and we want to deal in truth. But in the end, I I, I did post. I posted around the middle of the day uh, for Blackout Tuesday. So did Charlene and so did our church. And I I posted it because as I was thinking about it and and thinking about it with the Lord, I realized, you know, I, I have friends on social media who are black that I've been talking to about all this stuff. And on the off chance that they checked my social media that day, I wanted them to know that I cared about them. I wanted them to know that I cared about them personally. I wanted them to know that I was listening, and I wanted them to know that I see them as they're hurting. And I can do that without agreeing with everything that gets lumped into this current social movement. I can tell someone, I see you, I love you, I want good for you, without agreeing that all police are inherently corrupt. I can do that, and so that's what I did. And I had our church do it as well because I thought about a wonderful conversation I had about a year ago with two black sisters, and I'm not trying to use urban slang or something. They were literally sisters. So (laughs) they were two black sisters who had asked if we could just spend some time talking about some questions uh, they had about the Bible. They had been listening to our messages online. So I took that hour, and we spoke over the phone, and as I said, it was just a wonderful time. And then right near the end of the conversation, One of them said to me, uh, hey, Pastor Jeff, we've got one more question. Uh, My sister once heard a preacher talk about how God created white people to be above black people. Is there anything in the Bible that says that? You know, my heart just dropped, just dropped. And I thought at that time, man, you know, it's 2019. How can this possibly be a question that any believer could have? Why would anybody entertain such a ridiculous opinion? And I still don't have the answer to those questions. But on Tuesday, I was thinking about them. I was thinking about those two sisters. And on the off chance that they or any other black men or women looked at our church's social media accounts, I wanted them to know that we see you, we love you, and we want good for you. That's it. And I haven't posted anything else to social media on the subject of race relations. And that's not because I don't care. It's actually because I am a very, very opinionated person, which will come as an absolute shock, I'm sure, to those of you who know me well. I'm a very, very um, opinionated person. But, you know, the older I get, I realize more and more just how little my opinion is actually worth. 
Because my opinion cannot heal. My opinion cannot restore. It cannot give hope. It cannot purify. It cannot provide what the world needs. But the Bible calls Jesus the word, the word, logos in the original Greek. He is the meaning of everything. That's what logos means. It refers to the meaning of everything, the ultimate meaning. Jesus is the answer to every question. And when the word finds ears that are willing to hear and eyes that are willing to see, there can be healing, there can be restoration, there can be hope, there can be purification. So I've been waiting to speak on this subject until I felt like I had connected with God's heart because that's the place that I want to speak from. This message is not going to be what a lot of you might be expecting or what some of you might even be hoping. Uh, I'm not going to quote a single statistic. I'm not going to address a single political position. I'm going to speak to you as a Christian brother or sister, and we're going to talk about three things. Firstly, we're going to talk about the Bible's theology of equality. Every single one of us needs to be crystal clear what the Bible teaches what it specifically says about the subject of race relations. Secondly, we're going to talk about why there's such a gap between the theology and reality, even in the lives of believers many times. And then lastly, we're going to talk about how we should respond to all of this. I didn't put any fill-in points on the outline today because I want you to take note of the things that the Holy Spirit illuminates to you personally. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. So if you feel the Lord sticking a finger in your spirit when I say something, write it down, because that means the Lord wants you to think on it, and he wants you to pray about it some more. This is going to be a a conversation, and there might be some awkward moments, but again, if you know me, then you're used to a certain degree of awkwardness. I'm going to ask you to to just exhale, to lower your internal defenses, and to, to open up your heart to the Holy Spirit. Get in a spiritual posture that says, I'm open to hear from you, Lord. Whatever you want to say, I want to hear it. I want to hear it, Lord. So just get yourself into that place. Even quickly pray a prayer and ask God to do that in your heart. Let's get into it. If you're a Christian, then hopefully you're aware that Christians have a theology of equality. That means the Bible itself teaches that all men and all women are equal. And I want to start by addressing this subject to make sure that we understand where specifically in the scriptures we derive this doctrine from. In Genesis 1.27, first chapter, first book of the Bible, it says God created man in his own image. Would you underline that? In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the thing that makes men and women unique is that among all the living things in the universe, only we were created in the image of God. The famous Latin term for that is imago Dei, the image of God, imago Dei. That means that we were created to be God's representatives on the earth, his ambassadors. We were created to bear his image as an ambassador represents his country in a foreign country. It also means that we were created with unique characteristics, most notably 
Every man and woman has a spirit that is eternal. We also have free will and we have consciousness at a level that is unsurpassed in all creation. Listen, I know you love your dog. I know you love your cat, maybe. But they were not created Imago Dei. Only men and women were created in the image of God. And here's why that is so important. Regardless of ethnicity or any other differences, every man and woman shares the characteristic of being made in the image of God. We all share the characteristic of being made in the image of God equally. And so we talk more about that concept of Imago Day in our Genesis series, and I put the link on your outlines. You can go and listen to that message this week if you want to know more about that. The most important thing about you and I is that we are Imago Day, and whoever you are, we share that. We share that quality. This is the starting point of why human life is sacred. Human life is sacred because God created human life for a sacred purpose. Let me say that again. Human life is sacred because God created human life for a sacred purpose. God made human life sacred. We were created to be consecrated. We were created to be set apart to serve and know the Lord. And as we move through the Old Testament, we get to the Tower of Babel incident where God divides people into ethnic groups with their own languages. By the way, He does not divide them into different races. There really is only one race, the human race. That's the theology of the Bible. But God divides people into ethnic groups and language groups at the Tower of Babel. And you can learn about that in our Exodus study. I put that link on your outline as well. Now, God does that because mankind was united under a wicked ruler and the entire human race was moving in the wrong direction away from God. This wicked ruler, uh, Nimrod, was leading everyone to rebel against the Lord. And so to prevent that from happening, God splits off the human race into different ethnic groups and languages. And then God appoints one of those people groups specifically to be a nation of evangelists. The Lord creates a nation, the nation of Israel, and their whole purpose is to represent God to these other nations that have wandered away from their maker. Why? Because God wanted them to return to him. That was God's heart. God cares about the nations knowing him. He always has. He cares about the nations enjoying a relationship with him full of his favor and full of his blessings. We see that even in the Old Testament. But unfortunately, much of the Old Testament, if we're honest, is the story of how Israel turned inward, became insular, and instead of caring about bringing others into the family of God, they began to believe that God really only favored them. And the fact of the matter is that Israel became very ethnocentric to the point where we would use the term today racist. They became very, very racist. To the point where when Jesus walked the earth, There was a popular morning prayer among Jewish men that declared, God, I praise you for not making me a Gentile, that's a non-Jew, a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was a well-known prayer of thanks prayed by Jewish men at the time Jesus was alive on the earth. 
perhaps you noticed that there wasn't only racism in play at that time, but there was also sexism. There was also classism. And in Hebrew culture at that time, wealth was considered a direct indicator of how much God favored you. And so that meant you had economic bigotry at play in a huge way in Hebrew culture as well. I hope you can see the difference already, even just within the microcosm of Hebrew culture at the time of Christ. I hope you can see the difference between what God created and what God desired and what man did. I hope you can see the difference between the destiny that God called Israel to and what Israel chose to do instead. There's a big difference between what God created and what God wanted and what we as people did. There's a big difference. When Isaiah prophesied about the Savior that God would send, hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth as that Savior, this is what Isaiah wrote about him. In Isaiah 53, it says, For he, that's Jesus, shall grow up before him, that's God the Father, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You see, when Jesus comes to the earth, he comes into this Hebrew culture that is full of racism, sexism, classism, and economic bigotry. And he comes at a time when the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a Savior who would overthrow their Roman oppressors. They were expecting a political and military rock star. They were expecting a Jewish William Wallace, so to speak. That's a Braveheart reference if you didn't get that. But Jesus showed up as the exact fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He didn't grow up in the intellectual, religious, and political capital of Jerusalem. No, Jesus grew up in the sticks. He grew up in Nazareth, a town made of lower-class, blue-collar workers without the educational equivalent of college degrees. Jesus worked as a tecton. He was a manual laborer craftsman, and he held that job for at least half of his life before he began his ministry at the age of 30. That passage from Isaiah tells us there was nothing striking, nothing attractive about Jesus' outward appearance at all. In fact, he grew up being mocked and despised as a bastard because, unsurprisingly, those around him didn't really buy the whole virgin birth miracle story. Jesus knows what it is to feel out of place. He knows what it's like to grow up hearing snide comments and insults, getting sideways glances as he goes about his daily life. Whatever Jesus got called growing up, I guarantee you, it was as bad as the N-word. I guarantee you. And this is how Jesus chose to grow up. He wasn't forced into that life by circumstance. He chose it before he ever came to the earth, before the earth was ever made, because Jesus wanted us to know that whoever we are, he's experienced the same pain and the same hurt. And that's true for you, whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through. Jesus understands. He's been through it. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he died for the sins of every single 
human being. That's why when John was writing his gospel, he summed up the mission of Jesus with this sentence, which would go on to become the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16, for God so loved who? The world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That means that God has determined the value of every human life as being priceless, priceless, because God has determined that every human life was worth the life of his son, Jesus, and Jesus has willingly laid down his life for every human life because he values them in the same way. This is why I say we have a theology of equality. The thing which makes us unique among all the creatures in the universe, the fact that we are Imago Dei, is present in each of us. The God who made heaven and earth and all things has laid down his life to save every person, valuing them as priceless by paying for each of us with his body and his blood. How then can any of us claim that somebody's life is worth less than our own? That sort of thinking is incompatible with Scripture. We can't think that way because Jesus has created us and saved us in such a way that those types of claims are easily refuted. The logic doesn't hold up. Jesus has shown us how much he values every single person. This is why. I remember a few years ago, there was a shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando. Dozens of people killed. And, and, and this is why we mourn that. Because every single one of those people who died in that shooting were made in the image of God. Jesus died for every single one of them. He valued them with his body and his blood. And they were all potential brothers and sisters in the family of God. Every single one of them. How a person lives their life does not make their life worth less. Our actions do not establish the value of our life. Jesus establishes the value of our life. And he has established the value of every life as being priceless. His is the only opinion that matters. It doesn't matter if you think somebody's life is worth less. Jesus overrules you. He says their life is priceless. In his famous message on the last days called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus revealed to his disciples that after he returned to heaven, the agenda would be taking the gospel, the message of what Jesus has done for every person to all the peoples of the earth. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. After his resurrection, when Jesus was famously commissioning his disciples, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Not only that, but Jesus told them that they would be given the Holy Spirit for the specific 
purpose of taking the gospel to the nations, for the specific purpose of being given the power they would need to do that. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and then underline this, and to the end of the earth. The nations were on the heart of Jesus because they've always been on the heart of God. And the disciples were like, cool, cool, all right, all right, nice, nice, but they, they didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. You see, they had been raised in a Jewish ethnocentric worldview. Let me be blunt here. They were racists. Every single one of the disciples were avid racists. They were shocked that Jesus would even suggest visiting Samaria, the area in Israel that was occupied by biracial Jews. So when Jesus is talking about the nations, they're probably thinking, oh, so you mean like Jews in other places. Cool, got it, got it. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the first church meeting of Christians in history in the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of the Feast of Pentecost. And from that moment on, The Holy Spirit has come into the life of everyone who places their faith in Jesus. But you know what? Even after Acts chapter 2, here's what a little logic and detective work will tell you. Even after Acts chapter 2, the disciples believed that only Jews could receive the Holy Spirit, meaning they almost certainly believed that only Jews could be saved. After Acts chapter 2, The church started with 120 racists on the day of Pentecost. This is probably the first time you've ever heard anyone say that. Now get this, they they didn't even know. They didn't even know that their thinking was wrong. You got to understand this. They've been raised in this. They didn't necessarily have malice or ill will toward any other ethnic groups. In their minds, this is just the way things were. Just like the tide comes in and out. They were just like, this is how the world works. Jews can be saved and go to heaven. Gentiles can't. Sucks to be a Gentile, but, you know, what What can you do? Can't stop the ocean tides. Can't save a Gentile. It's just the way it is. And then Acts chapter 10 happens. Acts chapter 10. Would you turn there in your Bibles? Acts chapter 10. I'm just going to read through this, point out a few things, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms, that just means charitable gifts, generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, that's 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and when he observed him, He was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, that's noon. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were made ready, 
he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. If you're not tracking with this yet, all of these are types of animals that were specifically forbidden to eat under the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. They were considered unclean animals. Verse 13, and a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, well, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, in other words, what God has declared clean, you must not call common. This was done three times. It happened three times. And the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself, or while Peter was perplexed, what this vision which he had seen meant, Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. So the place is packed. And now Peter, he starts realizing what God had been showing him in the vision and what this whole business with Cornelius is really all about. Verse 28. Then he, that's Peter, said to them, to everyone in the house, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. He's saying, you know, the Jewish law forbids me hanging out with you Gentiles or even going into your house. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I ask then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Peter's not all the way there yet. All he knows at this point is that God is okay with Jewish Christians being around Gentiles. But Peter's continuing to listen to the Holy Spirit in this moment, and the Holy Spirit is changing Peter's thinking and growing his understanding. And so now God speaks to Peter through Cornelius. Verse 30, so Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we're all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. And so now Peter understands that God wants him to share the gospel with Cornelius and his household. 
So Peter obeys. Verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Whoever believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. And so now Peter now understands that God will forgive Gentiles too. God is in the business of saving Gentiles too. But even Peter, he's still not ready for what happens next. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, that's the Jews, who believed, so Peter and his compatriots were astonished as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So understand this. Up to this moment, up to Acts chapter 10, all of the disciples, the church, had no paradigm, no concept, no idea that Gentiles could be saved. No idea that Gentiles could receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told them over and over, but they, they just couldn't see it. They, they couldn't see it because it was totally outside their paradigm. It was totally outside their worldview that God would actually save and give the Holy Spirit to Gentiles. And yet in this moment, Jesus does just that. And, and, and it's obvious. There's nothing they can say. It's just happened. Then Peter answered, verse 47, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. I love that. I love that. Whoever you are, we're all born into sin and we're all separated from God. Whoever you are, you need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus and Jesus died equally for all men and for all women. And Jesus gives his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, equally to all. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Romans 10, 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And in the years and decades to come, the apostles would be so radically transformed by the Holy Spirit that they would take the gospel, the good news of Jesus all over the known world. And they would die alone in the far reaches of the known world. Thomas in places like India. Matthew in places like Ethiopia. God's love gripped their hearts and it changed the way that they saw 
people who were different from them. And they were raised in a culture far more racist than any of us are right now. And when the gospel got a hold of them, they were suddenly willing to lay down their lives to bring people into the family of God who didn't speak the same language, who didn't look like them, who didn't have customs like them. That's what the love of God does in the heart of a believer. And so in this gap between the time Jesus ascended and returned to heaven and the time that Jesus will return to the earth again, God's agenda is the gospel going to the nations. Every man and woman that desires the truth, that desires to be in the light, being brought into the family of God and walking in the purpose for which they were created, Imago Dei to bear the image of God. That's God's agenda on the earth right now. Heaven, as you probably know, is heaven is perfection. It's paradise. And when John the apostle saw heaven and wrote about it in the book of Revelation, here's what he described seeing in Revelation 7, 9. He says, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne. This is what heaven is like. This is what paradise is like. Heaven is not colorblind. I need you to understand this. Heaven is not colorblind. Based on what John saw, in heaven we're still ethnically distinct. We don't all suddenly have the same skin color. The difference in heaven is that we're freed from our fallen, broken, sinful bodies. And that causes our differences to now be beautiful reflections of the creativity of our maker rather than reasons for tribalism and ethnocentrism. But our ethnicity, because it continues on into heaven, is meant to be a reflection of the glory of God and his creative genius because it's still present in heaven. If you know the life story of the Apostle Paul, and if you don't, it's in the book of Acts, Paul was about as racist of a person who has ever lived. He really was. But then he met Jesus. And over time, he was transformed into a man who summed up God's perspective on ethnicity in the church this way in Galatians 3.28. Paul wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul reveals the truth. He says, church, I'm I'm not telling you to try and be one. I'm telling you that you are one in Christ Jesus. That's the reality of the situation. You are one in Christ Jesus. So start acting like it. That's what Paul is saying. The Bible Christianity, Jesus, the apostles, they all teach a theology of equality. And a lot of the time, as as believers, that's where the sermon ends, right? We all close our Bibles, feel better, pat ourselves in the back, not a racist, because we believe in a theology of equality and, and we go back to our lives. But if we're honest, we have to ask why our theology isn't fully manifested in the church or in us. Listen, if you're on social media, you're going to figure out really quick that the church at large has not been purged of racism. 
Go into some comment sections. You'll, you'll see what I mean. And before you get defensive, oh, 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 Jeff, I'm not a racist. L- let me give you the punchline up front as to why the church is not fully done with racism. It's real simple. The church is not yet fully done with racism because the church is not yet fully done with the flesh. Okay? The church is made up of people who are not yet fully done with the flesh. Talking about you and me. As long as we're battling the flesh, we're going to be battling racism to some degree. Just like the flesh rises up every morning ready to try and steal the throne again, racism is part of that. It can get better. We can do better. But the world will never be fully purged of racism until it's purged of the flesh. And that's only going to happen when Jesus creates a new earth. Well, Jeff, racism died at the cross. Did it? Did it? Why in the world would you think that racism died at the cross? The sin of racism was paid for by Jesus at the cross. But racism didn't end at the cross. It didn't magically disappear. And when we become Christians, our sinful tendencies don't immediately vanish, never to return. Let's be sure that our theology is straight. When we place our faith in Jesus, when we're saved, we receive a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. But we're still stuck for now in this fleshly, sinful body that wants to do its own thing. And when I say its own thing, I mean sin. We're still in a body that wants to sin. And every day, every moment, we have to make the choice whether we're going to follow the leading of the spirit or of the flesh. And until we're done with the flesh, until we receive our resurrected bodies in the presence of Jesus, the flesh is going to be a threat. The flesh is going to lead us by default unless we consciously choose to be led by the Spirit and to follow His leading. There's a family I love dearly, and they once shared with me how our church had been a blessing to them. And and part of the reason was that they were choosing to have a family with more kids than they had originally planned. Because the husband said to me, he said, Jeff, you know, we had never actually even considered that the number of children we have was something we should be asking God about. You see, like 99.99% of Christians, they just had the paradigm that you have a conversation with your spouse about how many kids you want to have, and then you aim and hope for that number. But they had heard some Bible studies that God had spoken to them through, and they had had this conviction from the Holy Spirit, hey, hey, we need to give this decision to God. We need to ask the Lord what He wants to do. And then, praise God, they decided to follow the leading of the Spirit in that area of their life. And I share that story to make this point. Sometimes we don't listen to the Holy Spirit because we just think we already have the answers. It's not that we have any ill will or that we're trying to consciously act in rebellion, sometimes we just don't listen to the Spirit because we think we already have the answers. We don't think there's anything we need to learn. We don't think there's anything that we need to be taught because we think we already know how to do everything. We already know what we need to do. That was the disciples when the church began. They weren't actively trying to be racists. They just thought they had an understanding of how God and the world worked. Jews go to heaven, Gentiles don't. They didn't think it was something they needed to take to the Lord. And all of that changed because Peter 
opened his heart to what the Holy Spirit was trying to tell him. And he lived his life in such a way that he was open to hear from the Lord. And so the Lord spoke to him at the right time. And I bet the Lord had been bringing Peter along that journey for a while, for a while. So what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Well, I think we need to start by letting go of the assumption that we know everything that we need to know. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I think we all need to be honest about the fact that we're in a daily battle between the spirit and the flesh. And so we need to at least acknowledge the fact that, that we're susceptible. We're susceptible to racism because we're susceptible to the flesh. And things like tribalism are, are unfortunately part of human nature. We naturally gravitate to people who are like us, ethnically, socioeconomically, and then we tend to view other people as other. That, that's how things naturally happen in human nature unless we consciously move in another direction. To claim otherwise is demonstrably untrue and, and it's theologically inconsistent. So we should let go of our assumptions And I want to suggest that we start with a very simple question, a very, very simple question. Lord, is there anything that you want to do in my heart in this specific area? Lord, is there anything that you want to do? Is there something you want to show me? Is there something you want to change in my thinking and my motivations? Is there something you want to illuminate right now? I think we should be humble and open enough to ask the Lord that question and to make our lives available to him in that way. I see a lot of Christians scrambling to find out what they should do because, because they're worried. Am I, am I a racist? I could be a racist. Do people think I'm a racist? Well, what, do we need, what do I need to do to, to make sure I don't feel like a racist and let other people know I'm not a racist? And I see a whole lot of other Christians. I see a whole lot of other Christians telling other Christians what they should do. Here's a list of things you should do. Here's books you need to read. Here's an organization you need to give to financially. You need to find some black people and you need to serve them. You need to do this. You need to do this. If you're serious about change, listen to me, church. Listen to me. And then stay with me because I'm going somewhere with this. Be very careful. Be very careful of well-intentioned legalism. Be very careful of well-intentioned legalism. Because when you buy into that, a list of things we need to do, what you're saying is, oh, the only problem is that I didn't know what I was supposed to do now. That's why I had this sin issue in my life. That's just not how it works. It's not like if we're struggling with lust, we can suddenly read some Bible verses that tell us it's sin, and then we go, oh, okay, now I'm cured from lust because I know what I'm supposed to do. It's a heart issue that goes much, much, much deeper. Part of the story of almost the whole Old Testament is God giving his people the law, saying, here's what you need to do to be righteous. And then for a couple of thousand years, it's the story of Israel failing to be able to keep the law. That's a huge part of the entire point of the Old Testament, proving that we can't be good by just being given a list of things we need to do. It doesn't work. That's legalism. It never works. If you know the scriptures, if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount, then you know, then you know that legalism doesn't work because it doesn't address the heart. 
The heart is the driving force behind the thoughts we think and the things that we do and the way we view the world around us. And when the Bible talks about walking in righteousness, it doesn't say the solution is a list of do's and don'ts. What is the solution? Well, let me tell you what Jesus said. John 15. I love it so much. Jesus said, here's the solution. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Jesus said, stay close to me, listen to me, fellowship with me, talk with me, walk with me, and you'll be changed. Your life will become fruitful. Your actions will become righteous. So if you'll open your heart to the Spirit, if you will humbly ask the Lord what He wants to show you, if you'll keep checking in with Jesus, let me tell you what's going to happen. If there's a video that you're supposed to see to change your understanding, Jesus will lead you to it. If there's a Bible study you need to hear on this subject, Jesus will lead you to it. If there's a book that you need to read, Jesus will bring it across your path and the Holy Spirit will prompt you and say, you need to read that one. If there's a personal story you need to hear, God will make sure it finds its way to you. God may not call you to do anything at this moment. He may have a different process for you. God may call you to do any of those things that I mentioned. He may also call you to do far, far more. God might ask you to pack up your stuff and move to an inner city neighborhood and serve the black community. He might do that. But the point is, the goal of the Christian is not to make a list of things we need to do and do it. That's legalism. That's the law. We're dead to that. The purpose of the Christian life is to be led by the Holy Spirit and to obey Jesus. That's the goal to obey Jesus and allow his Holy Spirit to make us more and more like him. As is the case in every area of life, we're to offer up this area of our life to Jesus and ask him in sincerity, what do you want to do, Lord? What do you want to do? I'm available. I'm open. If you want me to do something practically, I'm open. If you want to change my thinking, I'm open to learning. You want to change my heart, God, come and do it. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's about Jesus. It's about fellowship with him. It's about knowing him and becoming more like him and allowing him to work that out in our lives from the heart outward. Can I ask you a question? Have you done that with regards to all the racial upheaval taking place in the world right now? Have you asked the Lord to lead you? Have you asked him if there's anything he wants to do in your life? If you haven't, please do. Please do. Because the church and the world needs to see Jesus, not you, not me. The church and the world needs to hear the voice of Jesus, not your opinion or mine. The most important thing right now as always, it's not statistics, it's not viral videos, it's not anything like that. The most important thing is Jesus and his mission on the earth right now is bringing people into his family.
That's the most important thing. And we were created Imago Dei. You and I were created to represent Jesus on the earth, to be his ambassadors on the earth. And so I want to ask you, are you doing that in this cultural moment? Are you representing yourself and your own opinions and your own feelings and thoughts? Or are you representing the heart of God? I'm intentionally not giving you a list of do's and don'ts. I am intentionally asking you to submit your life to Jesus and follow his leading because we are all at different places. We are all growing at a different pace and we've all got some growing to do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hey, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes wherever you're at? Father, we... um, We just open our hearts to you. Holy Spirit, would you counsel us? If there's any change that needs to happen, Lord, start with us. Start in our hearts. May the things that we long to see in the world, the love and the grace and the kindness we long to see in the world, Lord, may it begin in us as individuals and collectively in us as your church. So, Father, we open our hearts to you. Make us more like your son, Jesus. Do your work in us. We welcome it, Lord. Father, we pray for peace and comfort from your spirit for those who are hurting. Lord, the why is really not even that important. But there are people hurting deeply right now, and we pray that they would find the comfort that they need in your spirit, Lord. We pray for those who are hurting. We pray as well, Lord, for peace in the streets everywhere in the world where there is upheaval and violence and wrath and anger and sin. Lord, would you bring peace? Would you bring safety? Would you bring healing? Would you elevate your name and the beauty of the name that is Jesus in this situation in each individual life? Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now. Because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. 
And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.